Hello and welcome to Out to Lunch, the podcast where I get to chat to the greatest of people over the greatest of food. This series, we're doing this virtually, of course, with myself and my guests sat in our respective homes and the lunch I've chosen arriving at our respective doors. Chatting over those takeaway boxes with me this time is Manchester United and England footballer turned TV pundit and businessman, it's Gary Neville. I love football less today than I did six weeks ago and I've not seen a match And that's a big thing for me to say. I love football less than I did six weeks ago. You know, obviously this is in for lunch um, and some food is on its way to you. Now, you know, because I wrote about it in a review of one of your restaurants, um, and this is going to drive certain listeners absolutely nuts, that I have almost no knowledge of football whatsoever. I am that rare creature, a man in Britain who just never been part of my culture. Yeah. And I um, I chose a, a particular restaurant um, because there are uh, outposts both in Manchester and in London, and we could get delivered exactly the same food, which I thought would be cool. Um, so I went for a Spanish restaurant called Iberica. Yeah. And then I thought, oh, God, is this a really bad call, given that perhaps the famous unhappiest moment of your career was the few months when you were the manager of Valencia. Um, but I've, I've also <laughs> listened to various, you talk about this and you, you've said that actually, you know, you learned a lot from that period. So uh, how do you feel about Spanish culture and food, given what's heading your way? Do you know, the, the biggest disappointment I have with my time at Valencia, obviously the results, because I wanted to do well for the club and for the owner and with the players, but the, the act, I actually loved living over there, the food, the way of life, uh, the culture. And because I was only over there for four months, it was just cut far too short from a football point of view, but also from a life experience point of view. And my way of my way of eating has changed since being in Valencia. Um, there is no doubt about that. We eat later at night. Yeah, I was the old, you know, sort of Lancastrian eat tea at five o'clock type guy, you know, <laughs> growing up. Uh, and it did change me in quite a lot of ways. I wish it had, because of the because of the language, I would like to have learned the language, but also continuing to experience the food. So let's go back, if, if we may, to your to your childhood, growing up um, with a family that was sport mad. Yeah. And I have to ask you a key question, and one that it doesn't seem many people have asked you in the media, but it's a very important question. Your dad, also a sportsman, um, yeah. made a living as a lorry driver, uh, Mr. Neville, did you ever ask your grandparents why they decided to give him the first name Neville? Uh, if you ever met my nan, my dad's mum, you would never ask that question. <laughs> she was the most stubborn, belligerent individual that I've ever met in my life. Uh, I, I, the story goes that she had my dad, she was in hospital, and her sister was there, and it was 24 hours after my dad had sort of been born. And as with, I think, most babies when they're born, they put the name tag above the bed. And it was basically Neville. My name was was called Neville, obviously. Uh, And one of the nurses walked in and said, is this baby Neville? And my nan's sister said, no, no, that's the second name. Anyway, my nan said, I actually quite like it. And my nan's sister apparently goes, that's ridiculous. It would be called, the baby would be called Neville, Neville. And any time you ever said to my nan, that's ridiculous and you couldn't do something... Well, obviously she, she was going it. to she was going to do it, and from that moment on, the, the sort of star was born, and it carried all the way through, really. But it actually helped in some ways, my dad, I think, as well, because people never forgot him once they met him, and he well, uh, indeed, you're, <laughs> you're never going to forget Neville. Neville, no. um, take take us through what kind of a childhood it was. You you said it was completely sport orientated; that that was the culture. 
It, it was. My mum was hockeying uh, netball uh, and rounders all the time. Winter and summer were just continual sport. And and and, and with my dad, it was it was cricket in the summer. It was football in the winter. Uh, it consumed our lives. I would say probably only Friday night in the week was the only night where I felt we didn't have anything on from a sporting point of view. I had to think it's, I mean, I know that you're not into football, but I do think for young people, it gives them, uh, it gives them a chance. I think sport in terms of, it gives them a lot of life lessons. I think the idea of playing, being part of a team, discipline, losing, winning, the emotions, the rejection of being left out, all the things that you have to experience in your later life can come quite early through sport. Hello, how are you okay? Thank you so much, thank you, thank you. Wow, here we go. Oh, so. they've sent you two nice canvas bags. Now, to explain, um, there is a small group of very nice Spanish restaurants called Iberica. Yeah. Um, they have one in Glasgow, they have one in Leeds, they have one in Manchester, not far from you, uh, and uh, a number of them in London. And I can take you through what you've got in there. If you would like, they've told me I've got a cold bag and a hot bag. Ooh, what's the that? Cheese, the oh, cheese they, selection. They, all right, I think I have to tell you that they probably added a few extra things to, to this order. Oh, we know what's what coming is. out the bag there, Gary. So here oh, we go. Here we go. Jamon Iberico. Jamon Iberico. Wow. So what you should have in there? Yes. Well, we'll start. I'll, I'll tell you what the starters are. There are some chorizo lollipops, which are tempered with a pear aioli. Okay. Um, there, there are some croquettas, Serrano ham croquettas, you know, the bechamel, which have been breaded yeah. and deep fried, um, and a tortilla. As the food has arrived, as all this Spanish food has arrived, let's go back to, you know, that childhood of sport and going yes. to see a Manchester United game and the food that was involved. Because <laughs> you've been very clear in the past that, that it wasn't just about, I've got to a game and I'm going to watch a game of football and then I'm no. going home. It was everything on the day. No, it, it changed my life, the whole experience. It was everything that I lived for, uh, for the weekend. Uh, and we would go to Marina's Grill at, at the top of the road there near Old Trafford and we'd have a chippy before every single match. And I'm a pudding, a state pudding, chips, peas and gravy, man. Uh, Holland's pudding uh, or pie, you know, meat and potato pie, chips, peas and gravy. And just loved every single minute of it. The atmosphere, the feeling, the, the food. Uh, and at that point in my life, I must have had four or five chippies a week. I don't think there'd be a football player that would eat a chippy now in the Premier League. Uh, but we literally were brought up on them. You know, it, it's just completely changed. The information's changed. I think the pressure, actually, of social media's changed towards what we can eat nowadays. It's actually a little bit overbearing. <laughs> well, I, I know exactly what you mean. As a man who makes his living eating, I'm, I'm often getting, you know, people commenting on my on my diet or the many diets I have. Um you talk about, we talk in, in, in hindsight of your whole career, and I, I find myself questioning, it, it's sort of representative of my own insecurities. Was there ever a moment where you thought, maybe I'm not good enough to play football? Because it, it just sounds like, oh, I played football, and then I ended up in the youth team. And was there ever any of that doubt? Yeah, there, I think there is lots of doubts. I think he, I, I, I've, I've become really confident and able, you know, be, I've got the ability to cope because of my football experiences with difficulties, losing games, criticism and, you know, public criticism as well. 
But there are doubts uh, regularly, I think, when you're a football player and when you're growing up as a young player. I mean, one of the big doubts that you have is where you see somebody else who is very good. Let's say Ryan Giggs, who was just absolutely out of this world at the age of 14, 15. And you would look at someone like Ryan play football and you look at yourself and you'd feel inferior and you think, I'm nowhere near as good as him. You know, and that just puts doubts in the back of your mind that you haven't built that resilience and that robustness as an individual to be confident through all these ups and downs. But your dad, your mum, you just keep you going. Look, you've got to carry on. What, what, what are you going to do? You're going to stop. And that actually carried on through my main career. So Alex Ferguson used to simplify things really well by saying, you, you know, you can win something and you can lose something. You can feel really good after winning and you can feel really bad after losing. But you've still got that choice to make the morning after when you wake up, whether you want to go again and whether you want to do the same things again, or you can stop. Uh, th- this is interesting because, you know, I, I've read this stuff. I've read a lot about you. I've listened to you. And you regularly say there were these great talents, Ryan Giggs, there was David Beckham. You knew them. You're all in the, you know, the, the youth team and whatever. And then there was you, and you didn't really have the talent, but you had the staying power. I mean, with the best win in the world, and this is a podcast, that sounds like total bollocks to me, because how the hell can you end up in a Manchester United, you know, on their yeah. youth team if you have no talent? Or is it, are you talking, you, you must be just talking relatively to these other guys. Yeah, relatively to those guys, but also I think what I did have, I understood the game well in terms of I could actually read the game whilst I was playing it. I knew what was happening. I could sort of try and impact it from my own point of view. I knew where to position myself. So positionally, I was quite good. So I think in some ways, I had a really good attitude towards the game. I had obviously a level of talent that was above average to play for Manchester United. (laughs) Was there ever a moment where you thought, you know, this isn't what I want to do with my life? Or always sport was always the thing? No, that might no. sound like a bizarre question, and there are probably people listening to this who, who love their football who are going, what a stupid question that is to ask Gary well, Neville. The only thing I would say is that when I became a football player, and it was only through becoming a football player that I actually found this sort of other love or other loves, as it were. Which So things like, you know, when I did my first house up and built my first house from scratch, it was a self-build, I really fell in love with property and renovation and preserving you know old buildings so I've done a lot of them during my life but that that I was only able to do that through the fact that I earned some money through football and then could build my own house so all of these secondary things that I've got in my life whether it be hospitality or whether it be property or whether it be other th- education projects they all the roots of those projects are football football was my number one and even now in my sort of post career sports and the business of sport to me I feel more aligned with than, 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 than other things. So, no, football for me has just been everything in my life. Hence, when you were 16, there was no doubt you were going to leave school. You weren't going to stay on and get a few more qualifications. Manchester United was calling and you were going. I, it just didn't even enter my head that this wasn't the thing I was going to do. There wasn't a suggestion that I would go on at school or continue at college or other things. No, it was all or nothing. Had to go for it. This was an opportunity of a lifetime. It's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make sure that 16 to 18, I was focused completely on football. I'd never, I didn't have an alcoholic drink until I was 18. <laughs> I always say this, I didn't socialise out at all until I was 18 and didn't have a girlfriend until I was 20. I had girlfriends at school, but I, from, for four years, I made a really calculated decision in respect of my school friends I didn't make contact with. I just focused everything in my life towards football. It was, it was actually quite selfish in some ways, but... 
I felt I felt like I needed to do it to have a chance. Obviously, one of the, the big talked about things is that you were part of a crew and one of those crews that doesn't necessarily happen all the time, the class of 92. Do you yeah. remember, for example, the first time you met David Beckham? It was, it was an unusual experience. It was actually unnerving, uh, not just because of David, nothing to do with David. So we'd been at Man- I was at Manchester United from the age of 11 to 14, where there were local lads, all from Barry, Bolton, Manchester, Salford, different areas around Greater Manchester. But when you, once you got to 14, you started to uh, be integrated with the out-of-town lads, we'd call them. You know, Keith Gillespie from Northern Ireland, Robbie Savage from Wales, David Beckham from London, all the different sort of, you know, they had scouts all over the country and all over Great Britain, and they would bring lads in from out of town. These lads were really good, you know, talented. And you thought, oh, the standard just got better. Uh, and just remember feeling unnerved by it. But I remember meeting, meeting David for the first time. He had a pristine Manchester United red tracksuit on. None of us had those tracksuits at that time. He was, I think the club were trying to, uh, as the story goes... They were Are trying you to suggesting stop. that David Beckham was concerned about his appearance? <laughs> he, do you know something? It, from day one... And this is what I, you know, I, I, I was the best man at his wedding and, you know, love him to bits. From day one, his appearance, his standards, his boots were always perfect. His laces were always tied correctly. Everything was clean. It was just, it was immaculate. And he played football like that. He shook a football in a way which I've never seen anybody strike a football. But I do remember meeting him, perfectly sort of gelled hair, immaculate Manchester United tracksuit, perfect white trainers, and there the rest of us were in sort of our scruffy sort of gear. I, I mean, I've got to ask you, because, you know, I, I come to and from Manchester. I know it quite well. And I'm kind of imagining you in this would have been the late, would it be in the late 80s, early 90s by yeah. this point? Yeah, Right. Manchester attitude is quite full on. He, he comes in to this crowd yeah. of Manx boys. Surely yeah. he, he was in the Lions den, wasn't he? He was. <laughs> And do you know what I always say about him and Robbie Savage, who, uh, you know, coming from the age of 14, 15, 16, leaving home like they did, coming to live in digs in Salford. It's earthy. Yes, earthy earthy is a good word. Earthy. Still pretty earthy in places now. Yeah, it's earthy and raw. And you had to, you know, they they worked out people that weren't sort of grounded. They not only survived in that uh, that environment, they thrived in that environment. He never once felt that, you know... you know, you see him now where he is. You know, I think of him now as being sort of a global superstar, which he is, and everybody knows him around the world. If people could just see him in that environment of being in Salford and leaving home, he had to integrate into us rather than the other way around. You know, I knew Scholes, Ian Butty and Phil and Giggsy. We were, we'd been together for a few years. David had to sort of, you know, fit into the way of life of Manchester, and, and he did, to be fair. I'm not going to ask you anything about the sporting record of you and Manchester United, because I'm just not, you know, <laughs> that's not what anybody wants to hear from me. What I am interested in, over the years, we've heard stories of football teams actually starting to school their young players in the wider world that they're going to experience. Um, you know, how to deal with having a bit of money, what to do when you go to a restaurant, how to be. Was any of that going on at Man U in those days? We did. Oh, the tortillas here, by the way. Oh, thank wow. We found it. Right. Uh, so, yes, I have to say that around that time, Manchester United started to introduce programmes around media training. They used to give us work experience on a Monday, which would expose us to different types of work in different areas of the club. So they did they did put a programme and wrap a programme around 
uh, football players and young football players because you're right, all of a sudden they're handed from being on £29.50 a week just by being good at football and devoting their lives to playing football, they end up with thousands of pounds a week being put in their bank account. And they're not prepared for it. I think football Did you have problems with it? Did you find it disconcerting? No, I didn't have a problem with it because I always saw it as a... uh, I I never had a problem with it. It never affected me. I don't think it impacted any of the lads at our age group because we had Sir Alex Ferguson who really kept us grounded and would, I mean, if we got carried away, I mean, it would just be, wouldn't happen. I mean, anybody who got carried away was out of the club. It was never about money. We had such a devotion to the club that none of us ever got involved in big contract disputes or my contracts were done in a couple of hours by me and my dad. Uh, I never sort of, you know, it wasn't worth it as far as I was concerned. The club were looking after me. I was getting paid enough. When I was in the first team at the age of, say, 25, 26, I used to see some of the 18, 19-year-olds the odd one or two come in in the fancy car. They'd gone too early. I would always say to a football player, just be clever. You know, just be sensible in those early years until you've established yourself and you gain credibility amongst your peers, amongst your colleagues, your teammates, the fans. Don't be seen driving around town in a car that basically draws what, attention. What to did self. you buy? What was you the car be. you got yourself? So the, it's it's a it's a story that the lads tell. We got Honda Preludes, which were like sports cars, and I changed mine to a Honda Accord, a Honda Accord, which was. A, <laughs> Honestly, it was a four-door because the idea of... Cl- I, I, I'm offended by the idea of climbing in and out of a car. It should not be an experience where you have to hurt your back or climb in and out of it. It's a case of... It should be almost like a smooth, calming experience getting in a car. So the idea of small sports cars, even though I've toyed with it a little bit of time since and the odd bit of fun for a day, it's just not for me, that, that world at all. So it was never drawn into it. What's there anything? Do you, do you have a, at all a memory of, you know the cash has started arriving, you go to a restaurant in Manchester or whatever and think, oh, I can do this. My first big contract was around 96. And that would have been the time that I would have bought my first house. You, you always have this area when you grow up. Well, I lived in an Ainsworth Road in Bury in a two-up, two-down terrace, but my cricket club was in Greenmount. And Greenmount is the posh area of Bury. And I always had this aspiration, we always had this dream that if I became a football player and I earned some money that the first thing that I would do would be to invest it into a house in Greenmount so I went and bought a house in Greenmount I moved my whole family in there my mum and dad lived in there for 15 years after I left I left it with them I, that was the moment where I thought I'm doing okay here from a point of view that to live here is a massive step up in my life and our family's life and I realized then that I could support my family and give them something back for the the, the sort of effort that they put into me but it was happening to both of you because Phil obviously was also in the team and he'd then end up at Everton as captain yeah. there. There's a famous shot of the two of you side by side <laughs> in the tunnel leading the teams out um, and you wouldn't even look at him. No, <laughs> no. And I, I just for me, Manchester United was a, it was a constant battle in my head that we had to win. Even if it was your brother leading the other team. Yeah, it just even teammates that played for other teams Philip was a distraction. I didn't want him there. He was, you know, everyone's looking at sort of the two Neville brothers, the first brothers to captain two Premier League teams. I'm not interested. I am absolutely not interested. I just want to win the match and then we can talk about it after. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. 
Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. How hard was it to move on, to to look into the abyss of a of a life not being a footballer anymore? The the thing for me was about two or three years before I finished, I got an injury that changed the way in which I thought, and it allowed me to pursue my business interests at that time with uh, developments in Manchester, the hospitality. We got the land at Old Trafford, uh, the property uh, side of things in Bolton. I was doing anyway. I had a consultancy and I wanted to do other projects and I knew that I had a big choice to make. Stay at Manchester United, which I was offered a role at Manchester United as a youth, as a coach and uh, as an ambassador. And that would then stifle my ambition to try and prove myself in other areas, which meant, you know, like property or other businesses that well, I wanted well, to. Well, let's just examine that. So there was definitely a, an idea in your head that you did have to prove yourself as, you know, I'm not a one-dimensional human being. Yeah, I, 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 I always felt that to get where I wanted to get to in life at the age of, say, 50, 55, I would have to leave, to, I would have to leave the club. Not because the club didn't look after me. The club were amazing. It's, the, it's been the biggest thing in my life. But I knew that to go and prove myself outside of Manchester United and not... I had this real problem with every time a player would be introduced when they'd retired as the ex-Manchester United football player, so-and-so. And to be referred to as ex-Manchester United football player throughout the rest of my 40 years of my life just felt a massive disappointment. I didn't want to be known to live off the club and to live off this great thing that I'd had. I wanted to be known for other things that I was going to do. On that point, should we uh, head into some main courses? I know you found the chicken. You should have found yeah. the pork as well. Yeah, the, um, pork's, over, the pork's over here. The uh, mo, mo, I'm going to have to pronounce this mojo, mojo rojo sauce, which is it's with the pork. It's with uh, red peppers, chili, garlic. It's a real punch that if you if you find it, it should be a little red pot. Um, and yeah, I can promise you that if you fork some of that into your mouth, I'll then have to talk for the next three minutes because uh, <laughs> it's quite powerful. Is it? Is it? Well, that, that, oh no, it's, no it's, is it this one? This red mojo? Is it hot? Is it hot? It's mildly spicy, Gary. It will. Uh, it will. Let's go. It will give you a bit of a punch. <laughs> the eyebrows have just gone up. It does. It does sort of have a kick at it. Towards. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's quite. It's, but it's slightly compelling. It kind of. It requires your attention. Mm. I'm just sort of curious. Yeah. Uh, what is going on right now with your hotels? You have football ho- hotel football, yeah. and you obviously got the Stock Exchange Hotel, which I was the first guest in. As, as I think you might know. I know. Yes. Um, <laughs> so what's going? What, we're in lockdown. We know there's a, a health crisis. What's going on with your hotels at the moment? At the moment, uh, both of them are open to the NHS workers and medical professionals from around the Greater Manchester area. Uh, it's being managed by the uh, the NHS Foundation Trust in Manchester. There have been nurses and doctors, and I think even the head of one of the hospitals is staying with us in terms of isolating away from vulnerable relatives, or some of their relatives are. Uh, displaying uh, signs of the virus. So we, it was something we did about six weeks ago. We knew that there was going to be a, 
uh, obviously a, a crisis in terms of obviously the health crisis, but the accommodation was going to be an issue for the medical professionals and we offered it open to them and they have been staying with us ever since and they love it there. We love having them there. A very blunt question, but it, it takes a bunch of people to actually do this. Are you still employing your staff? And if so, who's paying them? We put the, 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 the safety of our staff first, like the majority of businesses in this country did. But then when we wanted to do something for the community, we knew that hotels would have to open up to uh, NHS professionals. We actually asked our staff whether they would volunteer. And, um, yeah, they're still getting paid. We still pay our staff. Now, I need to get the things in the right order. Did the hotel come first before Cafe Football? Cafe Football first. Right. So I went and reviewed the Cafe Football in Stratford. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm sure, well, I don't know if you remember that review at all, where I was in there going, look, this isn't my world. Um, and, <laughs> I, I do. <laughs> and, and then making the point, oh my, they seem somewhere along the line to have decided to serve some really, really good food with a, a two Michelin star chef, Michael Wignall, overseeing the yeah. kitchen with a head yeah. chef from Bentley's, uh, which is a great seafood restaurant that I love very, yes. very much, Richard Corrigan's. Yeah. But the food itself... Well, brilliant was also um, hilarious. And I, I have to discuss with you Nev's noodle pot, which was, <laughs> which was uh, it, it was a ceramic pot looking like uh, a pot noodle uh, yeah. with noodles, fresh roast chicken, really good roast chicken in there. And then a glass teapot with this really good beefy broth full yeah. of umami flavours. And I mean, it was fantastic. I absolutely loved it. Was it Nev's? Was it yours? Did you come up with this idea or what happened? I think that we tried to sort of look at a couple of dishes. I grew up, you know, pot noodles were a thing that you, that you would have regularly growing up and I would have them growing up and sort of said, why don't we do What flavour? Just, just so I know. The, the chicken and, what's the one? Chicken and mushroom oh, one, chicken and mushroom. Yeah, yeah, it's basically the vanilla ice cream of pot noodles. <laughs> yeah, so I just think that what we, what we did... We just started to think about how we could... I mean, essentially, I think back now it's quite tacky. I mean, let's be clear. Um, <laughs> That's for you to say. I've already said what I've said. Anybody yeah. can find this review by Googling my name and Cafe Football. We were trying to have a bit of fun. We were trying to put, you know, we were, we were you know, that sort of branded football restaurant, but do it with a bit more class in the sense that the food quality was good. We would try and sort of get some, uh, you know, Michael Wignall's fantastic chef, taking traditional dishes that you know you grew up with and, and and enjoyed maybe in your football experiences and as, as in your childhood, and bring them into a world of restaurants and try and deliver them in a different way. And I think we probably were trying we, we probably tried to be a little bit too clever. I mean, let, let's be clear. Uh, <laughs> that sausage uh, roll, which I think I said I oh. wanted to adopt as my third child, which was this enormous yes. thing made with uh, shoulder and black pudding, and then yes. it, there were fennel seeds. But I mean, it was the most extraordinary sausage roll. But the curious thing was, I remember the staff saying to me that um, actually it wasn't ordered that much because of the presence of black pudding. And I know. Our, our, our food actually was, sounds crazy. Go it on. was too, it was, it was, when people order a sausage roll in cafe football, they just wanted yeah. a sausage roll like they get from Greg's. They didn't want one that was handmade by a two-star Michelin chef or designed by a two-star Michelin chef that was actually a really brilliant thing. Oh, I used to love it. Yeah, I used to love it myself. Clientele that were coming in wanted a football experience, food experience, but they didn't want the sort of. Uh, we had that. We had a different take on a. What was the orange thing that we had for desserts? And I can't remember what that was called. Oh, it, it was. Again, it was a take on the half orange at half time that you'd have when you were a kid. 
It was, and it was fantastic, but it was just something that never got ordered, and that's a real problem in restaurants. Well, I, I might have suggested in the review that this was the problem that you were you were heading towards, and actually, I, I found myself wondering whether this the restaurant became itself almost a parody of what happens to the working class kid made professional footballer that they pass through, and their their whole reference points become kind of gentrified, and so here you were with those reference points gentrified yeah. on the menu, and it didn't really make much sense to the fans. I, I embarked upon quite a number of projects in the first five, six years out of football that were, I would class now as being ego-led. Things like cafe football, let's go and prove ourselves in London. That's where London you know, should start. Look, why? Uh, and it made other experience, uh, made other bad decisions. Going for the two big black towers in St. Michael's in Manchester, the two big, huge, you know, Ken Shuttleworth make design towers. You know, bringing an architect from London into Manchester, we thought was being really sort of taking Manchester forward. But the people weren't ready for it. And if Manchester's not ready for something, if a city's not ready for something, you can't just force it upon them. And, and, and Valencia was the sort of the biggest learning experience that I could point towards where you take things on that you shouldn't take on because you think you can do everything because you've played at Manchester United and you've won a load of football matches and you've been really successful and you've played under a great manager and you feel unbeatable. So you get to the point whereby you feel, right, I'm unbreakable, everything's, a everything's going to be a success. And the reality of it is, you know, we've had some quite public slap in the face. I don't mind talking about those things because there to me is my business learnings in that first five-year period when I came out. I knew that if I tried things, I would make mistakes. The Stock Exchange Hotel... Um... Yes. which is a major, major project uh, yes. and beautiful. And I happened to end up being literally, I think, the first, well, I wasn't paying, you comped me, uh, or Tom <laughs> did. Or at least, you know, you were still laying the carpets that night, so I don't feel that guilty. But it was extraordinary to be the only person actually sleeping in that hotel that night um, because I was doing one of my live shows there. It's a beautiful, beautiful space, a beautiful building. And unlike, I think it's fair to say, anything that Manchester already had, what I call a mid-range boutique, in that there are, what, 80 rooms, 100 rooms? At the no, for, no, no, oh, 40 rooms, 40. Only 40, right, yeah. Yeah, definitely yeah. boutique. Um, and then you've got Tom Kerridge involved. Yes. Um, he said that was because you came striding into his restaurant at Corinthia, liked mm. his food and suggested it. Is that basically what happened? It was that. I think it, it was two things. It wasn't just actually Tom's food. It was more actually Tom's food being served in the room that it was being served in, in the Corinthia in London, which is a grand room, sort of vaulted ceilings. It is. The columns, similar to the ones we've got in the Stock Exchange. And I mean, very different. They're different in some ways, the rooms, the Corinthia, uh, so the rest, uh, carriages bar and grill. But there are similarities between our room in Manchester and Tom's uh, restaurant in London. I was sat in there one night thinking, you can actually serve what would be what I would call normal, solid food in a regal space. And we'd always seen the Stock Exchange, you know, the, the trading floor has been quite a regal space with the dome ceiling and the, the green marble. We always felt as though we were going to take it more towards the fine dining uh, elements. But because of the sort of experiences that I'd had in the previous five years, because of the way in which we'd sort of shifted and that, that experience of eating in Tom's restaurant in the Corinthia, and we certainly weren't going to take on an F&B project ourselves anymore, I just thought, Tom's a United fan. His food is the right type for our city. And I was very conscious of what would, you know, what, 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 what is Manchester ready for? What can Manchester take? What, what, what do they want? What do people want in Manchester? What do we want? And what do I want? And just thought, actually, this could work. And just I DM'd him on Twitter. 
Uh, I'd spoken to him a couple of times in the restaurant. I just said, look, are, are you willing to come up to Manchester and have a look at this space that I've got? I knew he'd like the space. It wasn't a doubt as to whether he'd like the space. And it was whether he wanted to work, have an operation, obviously, in a different city. He came up and straight away I could see that sort of glow on his face when he saw the, the room. And I just thought... It is a hell of a room, yeah. It's an amazing room. It, it's it's a privilege to actually go in there. For anybody, I think, no one can deny it's a brilliant room. He said, yeah, let's let's do it. And the, within two or three weeks, we almost had done the deal type thing. This is what was going to happen. This is what he was going to get. This is what we were going to get. This is what he was going to do. And this is what we were going to do. And that's how it should be. I, I'm I'm a pessimist around F&B because of my experiences and what's happened. I know how tough it is. You know, I've, I've lost money in that area quite regularly in this last five, six years and said we wouldn't do it again. Uh, so actually to do the numbers we were doing and the covers that we were doing in that first two or three months, it's like, whoa. This is what happens oh, yeah. when you, you... You were seriously booked. I was having to do back-channel requests on behalf of people to try and get yeah. a seat No, we, for, we, for we, friends of mine. We, we were flying, and it was a case of, this is what happens when you let somebody, you know, stay in your lane. You know, we'd bought the building, we'd done our job, we renovated it. Right, stay in your lane, let someone else deliver the F&B. Let, let me go back a, a moment in this story, because this is something I'm really, really interested in, which is um, you had, am I right, that a, a, a bunch of homeless people had started occupying it before you started the work on it, and most big businessmen would try and get them out, and you didn't because you weren't ready to fully renovate, and you gave it to them for six months. Mm. Um, and it's of a piece with you giving your hotels to the NHS. There is a... A, a commitment deep in the bone in you to what do we call it corporate social responsibility to doing the right thing to community where does that come from it's just doing the right thing and uh, you know I, I say this I lived in Manchester from the age of 27 to 20 to 31 and got to know I would say probably most of the homeless people that were living in Manchester at that time because I'd speak to them they'd come up to me they were football fans I would always uh, give them money or help them or do something with them and speak to them mainly. And then I moved out of the city from 31 to the age of sort of 44 when I moved back in six months ago. But even now when I walk out, they all know me and I know them. I know the homeless people on the streets. It's a shocker. It is a shocker. But that's. I mean, this is all very political stuff. Was your upbringing political? Were your mum and dad political? I feel that it's. I'm not. I'm not political from a point of view that yeah, I, I am political in some ways, but I don't get involved in it too much. But I do feel that we need to look after one another. And what's disappointed me in the last few weeks, in football particularly, is the way in which the different factions of football, the Premier League, the EFL, the PFA, the LMA, all the managers, players, leagues, so they've all got this FA itself. They've all got different interests. And they couldn't just... Oh, you're, you're talking about whether they're going to take cuts to their wages during during the lockdown and all of that? Cuts to the wages, football league clubs needing money from the, the clubs who've got more money. I'd just like to have seen a more social approach in these last few months from, or few what weeks. You, what do football. you think they should have done? Uh, I believe they should have set up a working crisis committee between the different organisations and, uh, organizations and segments in football uh, and said, right, we need to look after one another here. The ones who, the, the people who've got something need to give, and the people who, the people who haven't got it need to compromise. I think it's exposed the greed that exists within the game, and I don't like it. I actually, I, I, I love football less today than I did six weeks ago, and I've not seen a match, and that's a big thing for me to say. I love football less than I did six weeks ago. 
that is a very striking thing for you to say. Do you think it's a function of the way enormous amounts of money have come into the game, pretty much during your career and after? I, I have no problem with the money in the game. However, the distribution of the money should be dealt with more fairly. And I believe in moment like this, when it's just an absolute crisis that no one expected and no one planned for, we should all just adopt a different approach and one that looks after each other. Players look after the clubs, the clubs look after the players, the Premier League look after themselves, but also look after the FL clubs. The broadcasters are looking after the Premier League clubs, the Premier League clubs look after the broadcasters and really adopt a strategy of bringing the game together to do good. Not just that, not just look from an internal point of view, but look externally and think, right, what can we do for the country at this moment in time? Football has such reach. I just feel that we could have done so much more as the game. I clued myself within that as well. And I'm really disappointed every single day I wake up that I don't see this big announcement of this, what would be football's rescue package for itself that looks after everybody, but also looks outward to look after people that, that support the game and the communities. Mm-hmm. I, did, I did this football team sheet thing in the very early days for my businesses to try and sort of set out what would be the right priorities in this moment when people aren't thinking clearly. Now, I don't know if it'll show up, but it's a really, it's, oh, a, yeah. fun li- it's a fun little thing. But in, in goal, number one, is health. Whatever happens, we do not look beyond health. We have to make sure everybody is safe and we put health as our first priority. The centre-backs, job reassurance and support our community. Then the two full-backs, which are the two outer positions in the defence, they overlap right the way down to the bottom. They are cash flow and new funds required. Because every business, has, every business has got cash flow problems and new funds required and they would go all the way through this crisis right down to the bottom of the pitch. If this is the toughest match that businesses have ever faced, the toughest football match, in, if using the football analogy, that, 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 that this country has ever faced in this modern lifetime, I just thought, right, okay, it's a little bit like a football match, this. The first part of it is defensive. Health, job reassurance, cash flow, new funds that are required are defensive measures. And then you're going into that creative phase, that midfield phase, which is, right, we need to think about how we're going to operate efficiently in a post-COVID-19 scenario. We're going to think about how we sell, how we operate differently with social distancing in place, with travel restrictions in place. So we have to create a plan, which was around the number 10. The number 10 in football is the orchestra, you know, almost like the sort of conductor in the orchestra. So I said, we've got these sort of midfield creative elements feeding into a plan and then the striker, the number nine, is reopening and executing the plan. And it's been, re- I think it's been quite a real, it's been a helpful tool in the sense of this is what every business is going through at this moment in time. Even as a football ignoramus, and there are no ends to the depths of my ignorance when it comes to football, I still understand the metaphor that you've come up with. Yeah, and it just to me felt, and I just feel in football, uh, I just feel that the defensive measures have still not been put in place. Um, I have to say, you should try the rice pudding, which is oh. sort of splodged in a box. Yes, and it's nothing, I, yes, it's, I've got it's it. Nothing like it's pudding, but it's, it's dessert. Nothing like the rice pudding. Did you ever have rice pudding as a kid? Did your nan make it, or did your mum make it, or did your dad make it? My nan. Um, well, this one, there's kind of bit of a hit of citrus in there, and it's extremely creamy. Wow. Very good. You've clearly become adept at dealing with the media, with journalists, with interviews. I mean, you're part of it as well, obviously, yes, because you're yeah. there on, on Sky. Um, do you feel comfortable with that public role? Do you like it? I, I like it. I mean, I never want, I'm never one for saying that, you know, ultimately my life has been public since the age of sort of 
18, 19 when I started to play for United. And I, I've chosen that life. Beyond football, you know, I've chosen to stay on television. I've chosen to do things in the public arena. You know, I didn't need to do that. I could have gone and become a youth team coach at Manchester United, uh, coached the youth team players every day, settled in behind the scenes, but it wouldn't be my way. I've always fronted up in media interviews and I've always felt as though I could articulate a message around football quite well. So I was comfortable doing it and understand that I'm there to be shot at. Uh, as part of that but I actually feel part of the media now more than I do sort of what would be you know as a football player sometimes it's a bit us and them whereas actually now I feel as though I am I am part of the media I ask questions I feel in this last few weeks I've been very critical of the football associations and organisations that once employed me and, and, and gave me a job uh, because I felt as though I've had to be because I feel as though they've let themselves down and it would be wrong of me to sit there in the position that I'm in and just be quiet and not speak about it I have to thank you for being so candid with me. Um, it has been a joy staying in, in for lunch with you. And and thank you for putting up with me and my, my lack of football knowledge. Because <laughs> I know I'm the least likely person to interview one of the class of 92 at Manchester United. But you've, you've tolerated me brilliantly. Thank you, Jane. It's good to be actually interviewed by somebody who isn't always just asking me the same football questions. <laughs> well, that I could guarantee. Um, and uh, I'm just going to sit here and finish the rice pudding, which is fantastic. Yeah. I, I will, I will <laughs> thank just, you very much. I will just sum up, Gary Neville, thank you for staying in for lunch. Thank you, Jay. Well, that was an awful lot of fun. I could have talked to Gary Neville for hours. And if you want to try what we ate for yourself, it came from Iberica. It does have uh, restaurants all over the country, but it's only delivering from its London restaurants via Deliveroo and the bespoke delivery company Supper. Uh, if that wasn't enough, you can find loads more episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could give us a, a review, perhaps a five-star review, and share us, we'd be very, very happy. Partly because that enables other people to find the podcast and partly because it just makes us feel better about ourselves. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner, and Robert Rickenberg. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The assistant producer was Rosie Marotra. The producers are Selena Ream and Hannah Newton. And the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, I'll be in for lunch with former history boy and talk art host, the actor from years and years, it's Russell Tovey. I used to... Well, I still do collect Tracy Emin drawings. And I, with my History Boys movie money, I bought the Tracy Emin monoprint. And I was at the South Bank Show Awards one night for the History Boys. And I was sat near Tracy. We hung out in the bar and got drunk. And then she said, do you want to come and escort me to a couple of parties? And I was like, fuck, <laughs> yes, I do.